Hello, friends, and thank you so much for tuning in today. This is the PMDD podcast, and my name is Adriana. Just wanted to quickly say thank you again and again for tuning in today and for sharing these podcasts with family, friends, and other people that have been diagnosed with PMDD. It really, really makes a difference. So thank you. And let's get straight into today's episode. But first, a disclaimer. I am not a medical health expert. I am warning listeners that there may be sensitive topics surrounding mental health and health procedures. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Lara Bryden. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. This has been a long time coming. Um, We've obviously been connected by the lovely Tiffany Cook. We were both on her podcast. And when I first announced that I was doing this podcast, I had so many people um, message me and say, please get Lara Bryden on. Please get (laughs) Lara Bryden on. And and to be honest, at the time, I was like, there is no way I'll be able to get her on. And (laughs) magic happened with you know, two weeks, Tiffany connecting us. So I am so grateful um, that you can come on and share your expertise. Um, Mm -hmm. So where in the world are you? I'm in Christchurch, New Zealand. As you can probably hear, I have a Canadian accent. So I'm from Canada, but then I lived in Sydney for about 15 years. So I kind of, part of me is a Sydney sider, but then I've been in New Zealand for about the last six or seven years. Yeah. Oh, beautiful place to be in as well. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I've got here that you are a naturopathic doctor, that yes. you're a women's health activist, and yes. you're a best-selling author. So we're definitely going to dive into these two, two books a little bit later on. But I'd love to kind of understand your journey to becoming an expert in women's health, um, especially around the menstrual cycle. I'd love to hear how you sort of, got, you know, um, came yeah. where you are now. Yeah, you know what, it all just started on the ground with patients working nine to five, Monday to Friday, hearing women's stories, trying to figure out what worked for them early in my career, discovering that the natural treatments I was taught back in the 90s actually work very well for periods and work better, arguably, than contraceptive drugs, which is the only other thing on offer. So I've had decades of women kind of going, wait, I don't want to take the pill anymore. There must be another way. So that's where I came at it. I was also, through all those years, also treating perimenopause and menopause and thyroid problems. And then, as you mentioned, my two books about five or six years ago, I wrote my first book, put that out to the world. And then I've just written another book for women over 40. So I've, and then since then, I've had a lot of feedback from women all over the world, which is great, which confirms that women all over the world have the same experiences with their health as, you know, women in Canada and Australia and New Zealand. It's, it's, uh, makes sense. We're all biologically the same everywhere. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. It's, um, yeah, the pill. Let's let's dive. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's dive into that a little bit. I mean, I was somebody that um a very common story. I got my period. They were irregular. 
I started getting acne, went straight to the doctor. I was 16. I got my period late um, and straight away, here you go. Take the pill. This will get it regular and this will get rid of your, get, get rid of your acne. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, yes, it's a Band-Aid. It's a very easy to reach for kind of Band-Aid solution. Part of the problem, I guess the thing I'll say, I think the one thing that's going to have to come to light is to everyone, if you don't know this already, I'm sure you do, but everyone listening, that pill bleeds are not periods. So we've had this narrative that you can, you know, regulate the period with the pill. Actually, you can't do that. I mean, the contraceptive drugs in the pill can do, they can suppress symptoms, certainly, but they can't regulate the cycle because they don't interact with them with the actual menstrual cycle instead they switch off ovarian function they induce basically a temporary chemical menopause and replace our own hormones with these contraceptive drugs which are as i argue in both books not as beneficial as estrogen and progesterone our own estradiol and progesterone and so that's where this whole narrative is on, I would say, on shaky ground or quicksand from the beginning. Like, you know, we've had 50 or 60 or 70 years of this, the era of contraceptive drugs, but it's not going to go on forever. And I suspect future generations of doctors and women will look back and kind of think, what the heck was that? What were we doing for those decades? And it won't be the first time that's happened in medicine because that happens a lot, actually. They sort of learn to do things better. And so I'm hopeful for women that future generations will have natural menstrual cycles. This is one of my, the hashtags I use on social media is the right to ovulate, the (gasps) right to have a menstrual cycle because we need to, because it's beneficial. Yeah. 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 So tell me like, so We've got the pill because, I, I mean, I only ever took the pill, the tablet that we take each day. But then you yeah. have, you know, the contraception where you don't bleed at all. I mean, yeah, is that, oh, how do I put this right word? Is it worse or better? To, or is Yeah, that- well, that's an interesting question because, and I talk about this in my books and I have a blog post about called Do Women Need Periods? So here's just to say again, so we don't need, We don't need a bleed for the bleed's sake, which is why a pill-induced bleed, you know, the withdrawal bleed that you get on the combined pill, doesn't mean anything. It's not necessary to bleed monthly. There's no medical reason to bleed monthly on the pill. Mm. So in a way, if you're going to take the pill, you might as well just, you know, bleed every three months or, you know, as often as you maybe need to, to avoid breakthrough bleeding. But the other interesting part of this is that the hormonal IUD or coil or intrauterine device, which is very popular, is um, interesting in that it actually, ironically, so it, it can suppress bleeding, but it can permit cycling, which means it can't, it doesn't suppress ovarian function the way the pill does. So you can actually get some of the normal ups and downs of hormones, which I would argue is a good thing Mm. on the hormonal IUD. So often what I say, just to clarify this is with, with the pill, you bleed, but don't cycle, which is silly (laughs) with the hormonal IUD, you can actually cycle, but not bleed. Um, so in a way I'd say the hormonal IUD is better, arguably better. It's still a contraceptive drug that has side effects and that has side effects for the brain and breasts and skin and in some women, 
but it's a lower dose drug than the pill. And then of course there's other methods, you know, the implant and the mini pill, which don't cause a withdrawal bleed. Instead, they just um, create the situation of what's called anovulation or sort of you're still getting some estrogen, making some estrogen. So you get these kind of random breakthrough bleeds, but you, you're not cycling. So maybe we should actually, for your listeners to find what a cycle is because yes. Yeah, and also the word that you said before, anovular. I, I got yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, because I actually have, I actually have a listener that um that 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 actually um sent through a question with that wording, and I was like, yeah, I, I don't even, I don't even know what that is. So please, okay, I'd love for you right. to explain. So that. let's do it. <laughs> so a menstrual cycle, by definition, is a cycle that where ovulation is the main event. So ovulation obviously is how we make an egg to make a baby, but even if we don't want a baby, ovulation is how we make hormones. It's the whole, it's the center pivotal event in the whole the cycle. And that, that's why cycles are roughly monthly because that's how long it takes to ovulate each month. And so that's an ovulatory cycle, which is a healthy cycle, which is one in which you make it both estrogen and progesterone because progesterone is the hormone we can only make after ovulation. And there's no progesterone in any type of hormonal birth control because those are progestin drugs, which are different. Mm -hmm. So then an anovulatory cycle means a cycle means, well, a cycle or bleed in a situation when ovulation did not occur. You just, you only have the ovaries kind of trying to ovulate. So they make quite a lot of estrogen, but they make no progesterone. And so the bleeds are typically, they can be weird in some way. They can be kind of just regular and normal skimming, but they often they can be longer. They can be heavier. And ovulatory bleeds are common. Well, they're the standard feature on the mini pill or implants or injections, hormonal birth control that on anovulatory cycles occur with PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome, that kind of the standard feature of that. And ovulatory cycles also occur in perimenopause, which is the topic of my second book, which is the 10 years leading up to menopause, which can start as young as 35. Wow. So hopefully that's clear about anovulatory cycles. Yes. And, you know, I think I'm going to go straight to the question because you okay. spoke about PCOS and, yes. and that, so I think I'm just going to jump, jump straight to it. Because yeah. I would love for it because she did send it through last night. She's actually a friend of mine as well. Funnily okay, yeah. I'm other friends with PMDD. Um, yeah. but she says, for those who suffer from PCOS or have irregular periods with PMDD, would the yeah. fluctuation of hormones in an anovulatory cycle during the follicular phase have an effect on mood for those with PMDD? i.e. during a failed ovulation? Yes, it's a good question. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let me just start by saying it's possible to have mood symptoms with any kind of hormonal situation potentially, Um, including contraceptive drugs can cause mood side effects, right? And that's technically not PMDD. My understanding of the, the technical definition of PMDD is it's by definition associated with an ovulatory cycle. So if there's no ovulation and luteal phase, then it's not technically PMDD, which does not mean 
there aren't symptoms. I mean, there could still be like in some women are quite sensitive to the ups and downs of their own estrogen and get like a histamine kind of immune response to estrogen, which can definitely contribute to mood symptoms. But broadly, like generally, I would say, especially with my patients, I would observe that anovulatory cycles are less likely to have premenstrual symptoms or, um, and, and actually what can happen is the opposite. As soon as you maybe go from sort of a PCOS situation and then you get healthier and you start ovulating regularly suddenly the mood symptoms come online and you're like wow what's that I you know I didn't know now I'm feeling quite different with my cycle in what is arguably not a good great way and I actually talk about that a little bit in my first book period repair manual where then the response might be well wait if this is how ovulatory cycles are in terms of mood and maybe I don't want them but I would argue you still do want them because it's very beneficial to make progesterone and have a proper ovulatory cycle and then there are ways to do that and still feel well and just to clarify which is not to say we should maybe talk about this because this is a you know podcast sort of about premenstrual the the I would argue, so I would sort of present it as the mainstream view has been that progesterone causes the mood symptoms. The more naturopathic view is a bit different from that. Like I think progesterone is not to blame, although progesterone is involved sometimes. (laughs) So we could talk about that a little bit more, but um, yeah, I hope that answers the questions. Usually anovulatory cycles have fewer mood symptoms, but if there are mood symptoms, there might be something a little different going on. Maybe the histamine picture. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And I know that you speak about histamine as well. So um, let's let's go back to what you were just talking about. Then let's talk about the naturopathic view of what the MDD is, because it is a very new, new sort of topic. And, you know, I'd love to hear it from, that is one of my questions. What, yeah, from your view, what's your understanding of it? Yeah, I guess the simplest way to say it is it's a like it, it's a hypersense, a sensitivity to that normal ups and downs of estrogen and progesterone. It's like it's like the it's a brain reaction. The brain is not ha- not not experiencing those ups and downs in a good way. And which is not to say the ups and downs of the hormones are the problem because that's actually normal. That's what's supposed to happen in a cycle. So it's kind of about what I call hormonal resiliency or the situation in the brain, particularly around the GABA receptor in Mm. the brain and particularly around, I think, histamine and mast cells play a big role as well. There are different nutritional deficiencies that can play a big role. I'm actually just working on a blog post. I don't know when this podcast will come out, but I'm working on a new PMDD blog post that kind of to try to summarize and um, some of my other writings on it. Because very often I'm, I'm listing things for, okay, so there's, there's a histamine side of things. There's a progesterone sensitivity at the GABA receptor. There's iodine deficiency. There's hyperlactin. These are all things that can factor in and they're happening in different women to different degrees so not every which makes sense like so many things not every woman with a pmdd diagnosis has the exact same thing going on Mm. of course yeah Mm. yeah there's so many factors that go in and and it's it's because it's such a new you know a new condition was i mean it's obviously been around for a long time but that we've known about it and everything and and because everyone's still trialing so many different things and well, it's been described in recent decades as a condition, 
Um, what, yeah, yeah, fair, fair enough. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, I, what worries me a little bit is it was originally sort of described by pharmaceutical companies to try to sell more antidepressants. Like there is kind of this bit of a background in PMDD, which I, I guess I'm just a little bit cautious about not over-medicalizing symptoms that are milder, mm-hmm. but at the same time, totally acknowledging that for some women, it's really intense and really strong and definitely requires help. And unfortunately, I don't think the antidepressant angle my observation doesn't work that well. I'm not anti it, but I, I just find it's just, you know, barely takes the edge off for some women. And then there's a whole, you know, conventional treatment of just trying to shut it all down with hormonal birth control, which definitely can relieve symptoms, but then brings along its own, own set of mood symptoms and problems. So mm. I generally find premenstrual mood one of my favorite things to treat because it can respond very, very well to natural treatments. And I think you said before our interview that that's been your experience, that you've been able to improve the symptoms with mm. dietary and presumably in supplement interventions and we can definitely talk about you know what's worked for you and also acknowledging that that what's worked for you might not work for every other person um but yeah that's it's one of my favorite things to treat because the results can be really good with Mm. natural treatment and can just be life-changing because yeah you can go from being quite debilitated to being able to have a life (laughs) just function to function yeah 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 (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, that, that on and off switch that we experience, it's, it, and when you're in that hype state, it's, it's very, very scary. And to be able to, like, to, from, um, I, I guess, from my personal experience, when it was in its hype stage, and now that I can come to this moment and reflect on it and see how far I've come, it's, yeah. um, it's definitely been a journey and, um, and exactly right. Not what's worked for me is going to work for, for other people, but I'd love to maybe just dive a little bit into histamine yes. um, and that, the role of that, because that, that wasn't something that I personally were, um, sort of, um, tried out in, in understanding or anything. I sort of bypassed that, but how, how, what's in your view, how does that play a role with PMDD? Yeah, so histamine, as your listeners probably know, is a part of the immune system. You know, it plays a role in allergies, obviously, like hay fever and things like that, which is why we take antihistamine drugs to help with those symptoms. But histamine is also a neurotransmitter and a very stimulating one. And the symptoms of high histamine in the brain is extreme irritability, Mm. insomnia, actually cause breast swelling, heavier periods. Like there's this whole kind of histamine picture that looks, if you overlap it, it looks exactly like premenstrual symptoms. So, and there's been talk about this for a while. And the mechanisms are that estrogen stimulates a histamine mast cell reaction, kind of histamine release in most women to some degree, but in some women to a lot greater degree. And then um, at the same time, histamine creates higher, you know, stimulates the ovaries to make more estrogen. So you can kind of get this vicious cycle feed forward, very high histamine estrogen picture that I think is often the picture in terms of breast swelling and headache or headaches is the other symptom of high histamine, you know, irritability, fluid retention, maybe hives. This is sort of the 
what has been colloquial described as sort of estrogen dominance, which is a term I don't actually use, but I think that's what people are talking about when they're talking about sort of estrogen dominance is this very immune kind of histamine picture. So one thing this means, just first step is that as almost as a test is you can try antihistamines for intense premenstrual mood symptoms. And in fact, historically, they used to prescribe that quite routinely. So it kind of, it used to be a prescription. I mean, as you say, PMDD is not new. Like women have been having premenstrual mood symptoms for a long time. And like 50 years ago, they'd give antihistamines and now they give antidepressants. I know sort of just, it just sort of depends on the fashion of the time, but like circling back to like, it's like, you know, looking at actually maybe trying antihistamines is not a bad approach because you could just sort of use them as needed. If it gives relief, you've got, you know, relief, but you've also got information that's like, oh, if it was relieved by antihistamines, then maybe there's some natural things I can do to reduce mm. histamine as well. And the, I can talk about some of those natural things. If, should I do that now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So um, potentially avoiding normal cow's dairy. I'll just mention it. You know, not everyone is sensitive to cow's dairy. A lot of most, in fact, I'd say two out of three people just in the world broadly are fine with dairy and kind of walk around going, I don't see what the big deal is. Well, you know, well, dairy's fine. And about one in three people get an immune reaction, kind of histamine reaction to it. And it can definitely play a role. That dairy sensitivity can play a role in heavy, heavy periods, painful periods and premenstrual mood. And there is a Deakin University study underway. I'm hoping it's been underway for a couple of years. So I'm hopeful the results will be out soon. And as soon as they are, I'll blog about it and tweet about it. Um, investigating um, the role of dairy, well, specifically A1 versus A2 casein, which are di- you know, different types of pr- cow dairy protein, and the role of in 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 premenstrual mood basically if basically if avoiding a1 casein um, normal cow's dairy can improve or reduce the likelihood of premenstrual mood symptoms so i'm excited to see that the study um i certainly with my own patients i find it can be a game changer and it's quite a simple thing because you can just switch over to like a2 dairy which be which include like goat and sheep and a2 milk Uh um so that's an easy thing that's probably step one for natural antihistamine step two would be obvious things like no alcohol um dialing down all the high histamine foods like kombucha and fermented foods and all these foods that are are healthy foods in general but for a woman in a having premenstrual mood symptoms are very can be very aggravating and so i'll say like you know just during your premenstrual phase don't load up on kombucha and sauerkraut and avocado and all these high histamine things and actually it can give quite a lot of relief um just from doing that treating the gut can really help with histamine there's a supplement called dao sort of um enzyme which you can take to help clear histamine and also vitamin b6 and vitamin b6 is one of the nutrients studied the most for premenstrual mood it's works very well. Um, and one of its mechanisms is by helping the body to clear histamine. Interesting. So in, yeah. just going back to the dairy part. Yeah. <laughs> and this is going to yeah. be a personal question because I've yeah, pretty yeah. much eliminated all like all dairy in in my life, but I just realized that I have been having butter. 
<laughs> oh, butter's fine. Butter's fine. This oh. is a little of the A1 casein in that. Yeah. So butter is usually fine. Butter's <laughs> fine. Actually, ricotta is usually fine because that's mostly whey with very little A1 casein. Like I mentioned, goat and sheep products are fine. Mm. Yeah. So, oh, good. <laughs> butter, butter is okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> my, my next question is, is like in how, like in what doses, you know, like it, it could right. you have like minimal or is it just like as soon as you've had no. a little bit, it's, it's going to affect. For this condition, mm. you can usually get away with a certain amount. So it's about finding that amount that you can get away with and feel good. And, you know, maybe generally, maybe cutting it back through the whole cycle, but especially during the premenstrual phase, the danger window, you know, reduce it more. And yeah, so it's, it, certain conditions do have to have very strict food avoidance, but not this one. This is one of the ones where you can just, you know, 90% off kind of thing, which is makes life easier. You can get away with that little bit of cheese and something is not necessarily going to be a problem. Got it. Got it. So, I mean, in, in your experience now with your, the patients, the clients that you're seeing, I mean, sort of, is, is it on the, like, are you seeing more and more people um, presenting PMDD symptoms? Yeah, it's a good question. I do think premenstrual mood symptoms in general are probably more than they were 20 or 25 years ago, you know, as to why all the different, why, why, you know, the reasons for that, I'm not sure. I suspect some of it's to do with actually, I think we've got a generation by generation kind of worsening microbiome situation, um, which is affecting the immune system. Like just a more generally like an increase in aller- like allergic kind of histamine microbiome pictures, if that makes sense. Like I think, I think PMDD is coming along with some of that increase in inflammatory sort of immune conditions, probably because of compounding problems with the microbiome because of generations of antibiotics. I mean, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. I mean, there's also other things affecting our hormonal systems as, you know, exposure to environmental toxins. We've had generations using hormonal birth control. Um, there, there definitely can be a factor of like, you know, if you've never, if you've been on hormonal birth control for years and then you come off and you start having your own cycles for the first time in 10 years and like for 15 years, maybe, or even 20 and then you start having these ups and downs of estradiol and progesterone are two main hormones. And you've never, your brain's never seen those before, basically, because it's always been on the synthetic hormones. Mm. Then, you know, there can be this sort of adjustment period to that. And yeah, there's different factors, perhaps why it's more. Do you feel like it's increasing in incidence? And have you had any of your other experts talk about that or, you know, why it might be? increasing yeah great question I I mean yeah because you beautifully explained it from a biological physical point of view and there's been um a little talk on that there's a lot of talk in the Facebook groups and everything that there's also trauma that might have sure um and that was going to be my next question because it's a bit of a there is a bit of a a healthy debate I wouldn't say you know that there's a lot of people that will come out and say well trauma has has a a factor in it as well but then there's obviously a lot of women that will put up their hand that's like I've never had anything traumatic happen in my life kind of thing so and still presenting PMDD so everyone's different right (laughs) well it's a calibration of the nervous system basically like it's like we talked about this is about having some resiliency within the nervous system 
to the hormonal ups and downs. And that resiliency can be impaired by lots of different things. So we've been talking about kind of one of the biological aspects would be the high histamine picture. There's other biological aspects I'd argue, which would be nutrient deficiency, specifically iodine deficiency. I mentioned high prolactin, but yes, also there could be underlying I would 100% believe that, you know, some underlying a history of trauma and sort of an early, that early potentially sort of childhood adverse event that sort of sets up a more reactive nervous system could definitely be a factor. But as you say, but some women, for some women, not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like I said, that, I, I haven't written a lot about that trauma side of things, but um, that would be for another expert to discuss in more detail. And what about maybe like bringing it down generation wise? Because I sort of look back on my mum and my grandma, and they were never diagnosed or anything. But my mum definitely had right. <laughs> had something going on. We have, you know, now she's obviously past menopause and everything and, and everything. But um, certainly now, me and my sister look back and we think definitely had PMD definitely had yeah so she had it all going on and interestingly enough when I was 16 when I got my period and I was presenting um the mood swings and the pain it was in my the the way that I processed it was well my mum has heavy periods my mum takes the day off right period that's normal. And it wasn't, it was only right. until I was 35 that someone, a, a nurse, a, a dental yeah. nurse looked at me and said, you know, that's not normal. And it was like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. That's, that's the common, yeah, that's a common situation. It's sort of um, normalizing of symptoms that are actually quite strong and unacceptable. And that, um, yeah, and there could be a generational amplification to some extent, like, you um, yeah, I, you know, as to that big question of is it more frequent than it used to be, I think it probably is. Um, mm. We don't have we don't have the data because no one was asking women. Like, in a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, they just were put in a institution with you know, like I'm just kind of you know, with no ah. analysis at all. So yeah, um, yeah. So um, you did speak about a deacon um research yes universe yes 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 is there anything else that you can sort of share that you've seen sort of come about that's giving us more information about yeah there's a lot there is a lot of research on the whole um neurosteroid change sensitivity so this is and I have written about this a little bit and I'll put in my upcoming blog post about premenstrual mood I'm going to um link to that but So basically this circles back to how progesterone, what progesterone is doing in all of this. Mm -hmm. And what the research is seeming to show is that women with PMDD, as you know, it's about one in 20. um, There's something different going on with the GABA receptor, which is GABA. How much you know about that is our main calming neurotransmitter Mm. in the brain and under normal circumstances, progesterone, which is the hormone we make after ovulation in the second half of our cycle, should be quite calming to the GABA receptor. And it is for most women, why women can feel a bit sleepier in their premenstrual phase, why pregnant, early pregnancy women can feel quite sleepy and taking progesterone can make you kind of tranquilized and like zen. Um, but with women with PMDD, there's 
in general, there seems to be something quite different going on and arguably sort of a like a malfunction or a, a not resilience of the GABA receptor. And so I'm personally quite interested in that research. I I'm just observed from a natural medicine perspective that one of the things that is kind of flagged as being something that can impair the resilience of the GABA receptors is chronic inflammation and particularly histamine. So you even get the kind of inflammation mm-hmm. histamine picture coming into that. So from a natural, you know, from a, I guess from a conventional medicine perspective, I'm not sure quite what they're doing yet with that GABA receptor research. It still usually comes back to antidepressants as far as I can tell, but um, from a natural health perspective, like there's all ways we can support GABA in the brain and try to kind of stabilize that system. And so magnesium, for example, is very good at that. Um, Avoiding alcohol can also really help just kind of stabilize GABA. These are some obvious things, Um, even though acutely like drinking alcohol is calming, of course. But what I'm talking about is like chronically having alcohol destabilizes the GABA system if that makes sense like you know what acutely feels good then you kind of almost get a I don't know withdrawal is quite the wrong word like but you don't yeah without alcohol your whole GABA system is more stable and then um there's also the strategy of potentially taking progesterone for mood symptoms. Now, this is where we now are in the territory of there is definitely a divide in terms of like the kind of natural view versus the conventional view on this. So as I said that right at the beginning, actually the conventional view has been that progesterone causes mood symptoms that's sort of backed up with the observation that hormonal birth control causes mood symptoms. And that's progesterone is kind of how the reasoning goes of course that that, those drugs are not progesterone those are progestins which actually behave very differently in the brain so that's a whole other conversation about how the research into women's health has got all messed up by confusing progestins with progesterone and confusing pill bleeds with menstrual cycles and kind of you know not talking about it properly but real progesterone that we either make or we take as natural progesterone is yeah, has an interesting relationship with PMDD. I guess, I guess where I'm trying to go with this is it is possible. And I know there are some clinical trials trying again to potentially look at taking progesterone at the right dose to relieve premenstrual mood symptoms, because interesting, like progesterone at at a low dose can sometimes worsen PMDD too much person at a very high dose can worsen it, but there does seem to be a sweet spot where potentially just the right dose of progesterone during the luteal phase can improve PMDD symptoms in some women. And I've certainly seen that with, with my own patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just, I'm just offering that as another possibility of treatment there, are, you know, there are other things out there and certainly don't think that just because you, well, not you, but like, you know, someone listening reacted badly to hormonal birth control. Don't automatically think, oh, I can never take progesterone because, you know, because of this, like, so there's more to the oh, progesterone story. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and <clears throat> excuse me. So the, and, and so the dose will just, it's going to be unique to every person. Well, I'd say the dose is yes. I mean, yeah, I would say generally the dose with my patients, it seems to kind of be the sweet spot for mood is Mm. 
probably the 100 to 200 milligrams nighttime dosing of a progesterone, a natural progesterone capsule, which in, which in Australia is called Prometrium. In the US, it's Prometrium. In some countries, it's called Eutrogestin. This is not routinely prescribed as medicine for PMDD, and it's certainly not evidence-based at this point state this point in time but it's just something to maybe keep an eye on or maybe talk to your clinician about it and think about it yeah got it no thank you thank you yeah um so i mean let's we we definitely have to chat about your two books please okay yeah sure <laughs> because yeah. yes they're they're best selling and we need to talk about and they uh, they obviously um for two phases of a woman's life that is yeah. very 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 important so please can you yeah, dive yeah. into that sure so my first book is period repair manual it's for anyone who has a period or wants a period you know is of an age where you can still get a period so it's about just how to have better periods. Like if your period's missing, if it's irregular, if it's painful, if it's, I have a whole chapter on premenstrual mood. And then, so that's period repair manual. And then my second book is hormone repair manual, which is on the cover. I say it's for anyone over 40, probably 35, really. It's when you start to enter this transition phase of perimenopause, which is a normal transition. And then of course, menopause, which happens anywhere between age 45 to 55 when you stop getting periods and then a little bit beyond. Um, I do have a, a chapter in that book about beyond menopause and bone health and brain health and all those sorts mm. of things. But generally speaking, if anyone listening is in that almost beyond menopause, what the research seems to show is health is actually can be pretty stable and great during that time. So that's why I only put one you know, one chapter towards that, because that potentially could be now entering some decades of fairly stable health. It seems to need less um, treatment and, you know, management than the menstrual years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Excellent. And you did say that you're um, writing a blog post on MDD. Yes. Um, So I guess this is, I mean, when you do release that, I'll keep an eye out. I'll definitely yeah. be sharing that. Um, but how do people find you? How do people find the yeah. books and everything? And I, I mean, you are working with people, right? Can people yeah. work with you? How does it all work? Well, if you live in Christchurch, you can. <laughs> so I see patients face-to-face. I am currently taking new patients. I wasn't for a while, but I am now. And yeah, I don't, I only do, I don't do telehealth or online consults with new patients. Um, I do still treat some of my Sydney patients who have been with me for a couple of decades. Um, I just wow. do some of that online and I do actually even travel to Sydney occasionally. Of course I was coming more often pre <laughs> COVID, but um and I actually did even manage to get over to Sydney during the brief Australia, New Zealand travel bubble that we had mm. middle of last year. But in terms of where you can find me, my blog is larabryden.com. All of my social media is at larabryden. So I'm very easy to find. And yeah, the blog post is already quite a few blog posts on premenstrual mood, but the one that's coming, depending on when in the next few weeks, hopefully will be called um, How to Improve Hormonal Mood Symptoms. So maybe by the time this um, podcast is released, that'll be in existence. And um then my two books are, yeah, I've always said them, Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'll definitely pop all of it into the show notes. 
Um, I, I usually get these um, these podcasts out pretty quickly. So oh, do you? <laughs> You've got a fast turnaround. You're not like, oh, in three months I'll release this. No, <laughs> no I'm thinking more tomorrow. <laughs> oh, that's all good. All right, well, that's fine. So the the premenstrual mood blog post might be next week. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, and that's totally fine. But when I do see it, I'll definitely share it. Um, I'm sure there'll be people that will be following and um, looking out for that as well. So. Um, yeah. Lara, thank you so much. Yes. Like I, I, it's 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 very similar to another podcast where we had. There was so much information that I, you almost like you will need to listen to this one twice. And I think it's Absolutely. very valuable to listen to it twice. And I say that in a positive yeah. way because you have yeah. shared so much information. A lot of you know a lot of things that I think will definitely open the eyes to a lot of listeners. Um, and it's and it's a a viewpoint that is much needed and something that I'm very very happy to be sharing. So I'm just really yeah. really grateful for your time. And I'm so happy that we were able to yeah have this connection today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and for the great conversation. Thank you for listening. Stay up to date with the podcast by hitting the subscribe or follow button. Also, please remember to follow us at the underscore PMDD podcast on Instagram. I hope that this episode has resonated with you. If you know someone that may benefit from hearing it, then please share with them. Much love and thank you for tuning in. Look forward to chatting with you soon.